0: Okay, just a brief recap. Uh, So, what is your first name? Sarah? Sarah, Sarah, if you go to the church, uh, the church has a YouTube channel. The first two lectures are up there in video. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, great, so you're up to speed. Did you get, so I need to get you a set of introductory notes. I'll tell you what, um, maybe if, Before you leave tonight, you give me your email. I can email them to you in PDF form. So, yeah, great. All right, so just to recap, we're dealing with the book of Hebrews. And this is a book that truly fascinates me. And it fascinates me because of the way that it integrates the Old and New Testament. And, you know, we have a tendency to view the Old Testament, New Testament with a hard division between. But the book of Hebrews just really integrates the two together in such a way so that we can we can see the richness and appreciate the richness of the stories in the Old Testament and see how they how it fits together with New Testament with New Testament thought with New Testament theology. So you remember that I said that we don't know who the author of Hebrews was he was a second generation believer that much we know He was not an apostle uh, and he was writing to to Messianic Jews who were living in the Diaspora. The Diaspora means 10 cities that were scattered throughout uh, Asia Minor, that area there. And they were the more open-minded, liberal wing of Judaism. They were Hellenistic. They embraced, for the most part, Hellenistic culture. And uh, they, they... tended to be more affluent and lived a more cosmopolitan lifestyle. They spoke primarily Greek and so they would use the Greek Septuagint uh, to study the Holy Scriptures. So the author of Hebrews is concerned. He's concerned uh, because his concern laid along the line two lines basically. One, that there were people in, in in these Jewish communities, in these Messianic Jewish communities that had not fully embraced the concept of Jesus as the Messiah. And the second line of concern was, it was, it was a, a problem of the day that when apostles would go through the communities sharing the gospel, that behind them would come Judaizers, those who would seek to bring them back under the law in some way, shape or form. And so the author is writing to them and he's dealing with these subjects. And he is basically his, the, the, uh, the letter is a contrast between old and new. The old was not bad, uh, but it was incomplete. And the new is better because it is complete. And so he begins his letter, which we looked at two weeks ago, by contrasting the way God gave revelation in the, in the old and old times to the patriarchs, by the prophets that it was a little here, a little there, no one had the complete revelation. But finally, with the coming of the Messiah, God has fully spoken through Jesus. And so so everything that God has to say to mankind, he has spoken fully and finally through Christ the Lord. And so now he he is gonna he is going to prove his case but that Christ is the fulfillment and uh, with the coming of Christ, the, the, that which is old is done away with. It's passing away. It has passed away. But some, some of the Jews were having a problem embracing this. We looked at some reasons. It's, it's hard for us to make the cultural adjustment. That's why I wanted you to see that video last week and to understand that for, for you as a Jew to profess your faith in Jesus as the Messiah essentially meant well, that you were put out of the synagogue. And, you know, we, we, we think of synagogue as being excommunicated from the church. No big deal. I'll just go to the church down the street. But to be put out of the synagogue was essentially to have what was what was called the ban placed upon you. So you were out of the community. Your family disowned you. You were all on your own. And so there was this struggle here. Uh, nevertheless, he goes on and he makes his case by By showing how Jesus as the Messiah, is superior is the fulfillment, is both the fulfillment and superior to the three main pillars of Judaism. Those three pillars are number one, angels, number two, Moses, number three, the Levitical priesthood. So we started last week examining the text in Hebrews chapter one. So let's take our Bibles and turn in Hebrews chapter one and kind of pick it up from there. So if you have the notes, we were um, on page two, and he goes, he goes after angels first to demonstrate that Christ as the Messiah is superior to the angels, his message is superior to the angels uh, because of the Jewish affinity for angels, and we talked about that last week, their understanding of the concept of the angel of the Lord and angel of the Lord, uh, so so he goes here first. So we started looking at those passages. He remember what I said last week that he doesn't blow them out of the water by saying, Look, you guys are not understanding the angel, the angels as they appeared in the major events of the Old Testament. The burning bush, you know, the, the the parting of the sea, the you know, the appearance to Abraham, so on and so forth. He doesn't do that, but he operates within their assumptions. And he shows them, through these passages here, that Jesus, as the Son of God, is superior to the angels. Okay, so that's kind of where we were last week. So, so I'm going to pick it up, uh, once again, on page 2, verse four, uh, part B there, and pick it up at verse 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels as he has, by an inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they." So the author then goes and, and he uses seven citations from the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is given a higher status and has a, a more regal and supreme name than they. In verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1, we read, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And uh, God calls angels and believers sons of God. And you'll never find an angel referred to as as the son of God. When that term sons of God is used, such as in, in the book of Job, it's always used in the plural form. It's used in a different way. So you'll never find this when it comes to, uh, to angels. Psalm 2.7 says, I will decree the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that speaks of the position of the son to the father. Now, now we're, when you look at the, the word begotten in the Old Testament, it's going to be Hebrew. But the, in Hebrew. But the idea there is one of a kind unique. That's the way it is used in reference to the begotten son, only begotten Son of God. One of a kind, unique. Okay. So it speaks of the position of the son to the father, only begotten, not birth or origin, but a legal term that stresses the rights of the firstborn. No single angel was ever called a son of God. This is speaking about a unique one of a kind relationship with the father. Then we move on to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, which reads, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And this is a quote of Psalm 97, verse 7. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 97, Psalm 97. You remember I said last week, when you see these quotes of the Old Testament, and this is God, through the author, giving us a clue that there's something that he wants us to see, and he wants us to go back. So in Psalm 97, I'm going to read the psalm, and then you tell me what, what the relationship is, how this is somehow speaking to uh, Christ, okay? The Lord reigns, So I'll start at verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness, all the people see his glory. Let all be put to shame who served, who served carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Okay, now do you notice, you now keep your finger there and turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Now compare in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 let all the angels of God worship him with psalm 97 7 worship him all you gods so what's going on there is the author here, because he's speaking to Hellenistic Jews, he's using a quote out of the Greek Septuagint. So if you were to go to the Greek Septuagint, you would see that that's the way Psalm 97 reads in the Greek Septuagint. So it's a reference to the angels of God worshipping who? The Son, worshipping the Son of God, the Messiah. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that it is probably the second coming, although I'll have to get back to you on it. I'm not sure, But but I've got to look at the Greek text there, uh, but I'm thinking that that's what it's referring to. Okay. So, but when he brings, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So now that is a quote of Psalm 104, verse 4. So let's go to Psalm 104, verse 4 and take a look at what's going on around there. Yes. Sure. Yeah, yep. So it's apocalyptic. It's it's an apocalyptic psalm that talks about the sun, the return of the sun. Yes, Psalm one hundred seven. Let me check my mm, Psalm one hundred four, verse four. Blessed. I'll start at verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariots, who walks on the wings of wind, who makes his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay, so this is what he is speaking to the angels. So of the angels, he says, his angels are spirits and his ministers are a flame of fire. OK. So over on page three now in your notes. So the stress here is on the fact that angels are servants and servants are subject to the sun. So servants here mean religious devotion. So <coughs> he's speaking here of the angels as servants as those who are called to minister. Okay. In verse 8 now in Hebrews chapter 1, but to the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So these, this, this now is a quote out of Psalm 45, verses 7 and 8, which speaks about the deity of the Son and his authority in the Messianic kingdom. It tells us about his deity and his co-equality with the Son. You see that, that phrase there, therefore your throne, O God, is forever and ever, or your throne, O Adonai, is forever and ever. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, Adonai, your Adonai has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all your, com, all your companions. And so it's speaking of his authority in the messianic kingdom, his co-equality in his deity, that he's destined to have an eternal throne in the kingdom. His reign will be righteous and that the Son is exalted above all. Any questions? So you see here how he's making his case that that those passages in the Old Testament clearly show that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be superior to the angels. And so he's using their scriptures to demonstrate this. As I've mentioned before at other times, it's not unusual even today for Jewish children to memorize the entire book of Psalms, that they can recite the entire book of Psalms from memory. Yeah. It's not an unusual thing. And so, so he's m- marshaling out these scriptures, and, and many of them probably didn't, don't have to do what we have to do, go back and look. They haven't already... Tucked into their mind, so he's using their scriptures to demonstrate to him the superiority of the Son. Okay, sure. Yes, that's right. And they knew them not by chapter and verse, but by the first verse of the song. And they sing, you, you know, and they would sing. They sing the scriptures, right? So you memorize whole portions of Scripture as a song, right? So you take Psalm 1, and you turn it into a song, and you learn the song, and that's how, that's how they do it, okay? So. All right, so moving on to verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. They will all grow like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will cha- be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. Your years will have no end. Jesus is superior in his basic existence. He is the creator of the universe. The Son is sovereign over the changes in the universe. The Son is the unchangeable sovereign in the midst of a changing universe, The sun is eternal. While he is eternal, someday the universe will be discarded like a worn out old cloth. The universe is destined to be dissolved. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is a quote of Psalm 110.1. It predicts the Messiah's enthronement in glory in his seat at the right hand of the Father. In the ancient world, one who s- the one who sat at the right hand of a king was considered to be the king's equal. And so he's sitting, he's sitting there, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And finally, verse 14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inha- inherit salvation? While the son is seated, seated showing that his work is complete, the angels are still ministering. That is, they're still carrying out their duties of religious devotion on the last page here. They are specifically assigned to care for us and this care begins at infancy and continues throughout our lives. They are guarding us in the sense that nothing outside of the will of God for us will happen to us. Angels observe what we say, they observe our sufferings, they observe what we wear, and they escort a believer's soul to heaven when he or she dies. That is the function of angels. They are messengers of God. Well, see, it all depends on what you mean by guardian angels, right? So, so the, the common belief about guardian angels is that every living human being has a guardian angel as an angel that guards them. That is not true. They're called ministering spirits. So so their function to you as a believer is is to ensure that what God has purpose to come to happen in your life comes to pass as God has ordained it. and And to prevent anything that God has not ordained to come into your life from happening to you. So in that sense, you could say they're they're there watching over you right they're there and who knows we can't see into the spiritual realm but who knows what kind of battles they're doing with demonic spirits around us and about us right so we can't see into that realm but we know it exists right and the point the point of the author here in going after you going at this first was because of the way the Jews came to a semi-veneration of the angels, and they are, are and will still be important. They are they're still part of existence. Doug and I, Doug was asking me, you know, what role will they play a prominent role like they did in the Old Testament when we get into the Great Tribulation? You know, and, and, and they will. Right? They continue to play a role uh, even today. So they are important. But they don't overshadow what the Messiah has done. You remember, there was a twofold problem with the Jewish people as to the concept of the Messiah. One was they tended to take all of those big events in their history and attribute them to an angel. Remember, there was a distinction between an angel and the angel of the Lord, but they deny that distinction. And two, concept their concept of the Messiah was that he would be fully human and that at any given age there is one person who at least one person who would be qualified to be the Messiah right so there therein lies the problem therein lies the rub and so the author of Hebrews demonstrates through their scripture through Old Testament passages that every Jewish person is familiar with that where those passages speak to the Messiah they always speak to the Messiah as being more exalted than the angels and, in fact, being level with the deity, okay, being very God of God. Yes? Yes. So conception of the is really another that comes like David yes. or Solomon. Yes, or Cyrus, for that matter, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Cyrus, my anointed, right? Remember, we looked at that at, at week one. When you look at that in the Hebrew, it's Cyrus, my Mishiach, Cyrus, my Messiah, right? And so, and so that's the way they view the coming of the Messiah. And there are sects of Judaism today that don't even believe in the person, a personal Messiah, but of a, what's called a messianic age, right, where a messianic age will dawn upon the world. Okay, so, so that's what this is all about. So he goes after that, and he demonstrates to them from their own scriptures that all of those passages that were quoted, and there's a whole bunch of them there. We just kind of skim through them and they're in from verses uh, 5 to 14, all speak to the Messiah, and the Messiah as being superior to the angels. Okay, now there's a point to all of that, and that will come next week. All right, so let's go through the conclusion here. The two main points of the whole chapter, to demonstrate that what God the Father has to say through God the Son is fully and finally what he has to say to mankind. There's nothing else to be awaited or sought after concerning revelatory information. And there's nothing more. And so all of those, you know, and, and this, is, this is an ongoing problem in the church today. There are those who claim to are receiving revelatory information from God. You know, you, you scan on YouTube, right? I was just liking on YouTube today. I basically go on YouTube every morning to watch Tucker Carlson's commentary from the night before. But there's always somebody on there who says, I died and went to heaven for 15 minutes and this is what Jesus said to me. It's all over the place, right? So so here's the thing. And then there's the issue of those who are claiming to get prophetic prophetic information today, right? I joke around with Roman that I'm a prophet, right? Because I see things coming down the highway and I call them, but it's just a joke, right? Because there's there's a specific test to those who are claiming to be prophets and who are receiving revelatory information from God. What is the test? They can't be wrong not even a single time. And if they're wrong one time, they're false prophets and they're subject to the death penalty. (laughs) <laughs> You're hedging <laughs> your bet, but you don't know what God is going to do. Oh, that's a whole story. Right? Right? So in the commonwealth of Israel, false prophets were, who, who were, were put to death. Right? In the, new, in the new covenant, in the new covenant age, God deals with it. Right? However he deals with it. Okay. So the point being is that whatever else God has to say to mankind, he has spoken through Christ. That's it. There is no more revelatory information that is coming on the scene. Point two, God is very serious about those who would disregard both what the Son has said and those who would minimize what he has said by searching for more or new revelatory information. The song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Humanity has replaced looking for love with looking for information in all the wrong places. All of the answers, all of the solutions, all of the direction that our lives need come through the Son. What he has to say is weighty and critical to our lives in every single area. God the Father will hold everyone accountable who will not listen to what the Son has to say. Now, there's something I want to point out to you here in, again, the prophecies concerning the Messiah in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18 because I want you to see something here. And then you can, in turn, use this in your ministry to your Jewish friends. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, I'm going to read it. I want to see if you, can, if you pick it up, what's going on in here. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting at verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Well, what do you see in there? What is it that you see in there? so, But there's a little more than that where he says, I will raise up for you a prophet like me, like me, dual nature, divinity, and human. You see it? There it is right there. This prophet would be dual nature, divine, and human. There it is right there in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Yes. As to like yeah. Look. Yeah. Look up the Hebrew. Yeah. Look up the Hebrew. Okay. <laughs> yes. So uh huh. Yeah. Oh. So. Wait a minute. So you don't have in um, in verse 15. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And then, in eighteen, it says "Like you," which between the two of them is two natures. It's the exact same phraseology that's used in the in the in the Hebrew for both instances like me, like you you see it like me, like you it's right there in deuteronomy eighteen so so this is what the author is is doing so now, he's demonstrating to them and by extension to us, although with us, there's a, there's a whole different bag of things that we need to be concerned with. We don't really struggle with the concept of angels and the angel of the Lord, because unless you come from a Jewish background, you know, where you were raised in Judaism, you wouldn't have these struggles. Right. Um, but. He uses their scripture to demonstrate to them look no one is no one is saying that angels aren't important no one is saying that angels weren't an integral part and important to God's plan for humanity right but they are not on equal par with the Messiah because the Messiah, the one who would sit on Davidic, on the Davidic throne is both human and And divine, which is something that they struggle with to this day. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Any questions? Yes. John Uh, John chapter. All right. Is he talking about? Is that where? Yeah, but they were asking John the Baptist that. Yes. That this yeah, so that's in John chapter. So, so the of that's Messiah, that's yes. Right? Yes. It's, it's for the so is is that Don John the Baptist, are you the yeah. prophet? Are you the prophet? And that is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Yeah. Okay, well, didn't I kind of just do that? (laughs) All right, well, let's look look at the text. In John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to him who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So. The prophet there, when when they asked him, are you the prophet, he's referring, they were asking him if he was the promised prophet who would come of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now understand that I don't, not sure, no, actually every commentary that I've checked, every Jewish commentary that I've checked on that verse in Deuteronomy 18, none of them see in there the dual nature. The dual nature of divinity and, and humanity. As a matter of fact, most Christians don't see that in there, but it's there. It's there, right? And so they, they don't see that. And so what they were asking John the Baptist, are you the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you, who are you then? You know? And he announced himself as the one who would be what? The forerunner of the Messiah. Right? The one who would announce his arrival. Does that satisfactorily? Okay. All right. Okay, so now. In view of this. When he launches into Hebrews chapter 2. He says this. And we'll close with this. Because this is the homework assignment. Therefore. Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So there is the first, ma- the first of five major warnings. So therefore, on the basis of what he's just talked about, in Hebrews chapter 1, and that whole inclusio about the superiority of the Son to the angels, there's that first warning. Now, here is the homework assignment. I would like you to do an examination of verses 1 and 3. A verse exam- examination of 1 and 3. You remember these chapter sheets? Two. Chapter 2. Remember these sheets? So there are some up here. And I'd like you to look specifically... In verse 1, two words, earnest heed and drift away. And in verse 3, the word escape and neglect. Now let's see what you come up with. And then we will, I have the notes here, but don't look at them. I'm not e- exactly sure that I even parsed them out in the notes, but I have the notes here for the next lesson. Yeah, um, if you're, if you're done now, yeah I'm done. Okay, I'll keep them to next week. So I have sheets here. I have some extra sheets here. Remember how we did it? Use a concordance, right? Look up the word in a concordance. And then, um, so here's what you want to do. You want to read the chapter. Read the entire chapter get a sense of what the chapter is saying right you know what is the what is the primary theme of the chapter right and then you go down to the verse right and kind of get a sense of what the verse is, is saying and then you hone in on the words and then we'll come back next week and we'll uh, and we'll discuss it, so it? neglect Earnest heed and drift away, okay? Because this is where the warning now becomes, a, we, we see its relevance not only for the, he, the Messianic Jews to which this letter was written, but where it touches us as well, right? Because what we're going to look at next week is we're going to look at that, the, you know, the proof text for, for what it says in verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. So if the word that was mediated, if, if the things that were delivered through angels in the Old Testament, now remember, using their frame of reference came to the, in reference to the angels, if it received such a harsh judgment and justice, how much more so if we neglect what messiah has brought to us right and and we'll look at that we'll look at you know we'll look at this we won't get deep into it but we'll look at what the purposes were of the sacrifices in the old testament and you'll find out that they were they were for they were very restricted in their application and that any violation usually was subject to the death penalty, right? So, But we'll look at that next year. That's why I want you to look at those words because now you'll see, look, we're under the same caution here, right? It's the same Messiah, right? Okay, with that said, if there are no more questions, I'm going to end it here. I don't want to go any further into it.